Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. This year, women in leadership and the underrepresentation of women in senior positions have been discussed as topical issues on the show, in part because of the change that leaders exert on the well-being of others and the fact that opportunities should be equally accessible. In this episode, we have compiled excerpts of conversations with guests concerning female leadership. We open the show with Dr. Astrid Heller, who is the ambassador of Norway to South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Botswana, Madagascar, as well as Lesotho, talking about female-led countries like Norway, Germany, and New Zealand that effectively fought the COVID-19 pandemic. I think when it comes to the Nordic countries, it's a testimony that it's not only about women leadership today, but it's about societies that have developed social equality and reduced inequality for a hundred years. So uh, it was uh, through societies at that time led by men and even before uh, women got voting rights uh, that we started to have uh, trade unions and legislations to reduce the oppression of the majority uh, of people by a minority. And it demonstrates almost how long it takes for societies to to change over time. But bearing in mind the the positivity and the almost, I'd say, the leadership qualities that have happened and occurred in the region, we know that during the pandemic of COVID-19, some female leaders have led their nations brilliantly. How do you think that having female leadership contributes to achieving gender equality? Yes, thank you very much. It it has been very interesting to uh, follow the debates on why countries with female leaders seem to be able to uh, fight the pandemic better. Examples have been mentioned by uh, when it comes to Germany, uh, New Zealand, uh, the Nordic countries and uh, a few others. Uh, So uh, I think first of all, we must have some humility because we don't have the end of the pandemic yet. But I think it's it goes both ways, that there are women leaders who have maybe certain characteristics in common, but also that the kind of societies who choose women leaders are maybe a kind of societies that are better equipped to fight a pandemic. Societies there again with less inequality, with free education, with free health for all, Uh, Not because you got money from the sky, but because you have a fair taxation system where those who can contribute to do so uh, and everybody can enjoy a minimum of a welfare state. So I just wanted to to lay that foundation first and then we can add a certain number of uh, qualities uh, that I think we have been more aware of. First, we uh, fought for women's rights. Uh, and a gender equality from a human rights perspective, which I think is very legitimate. Uh, then I think that we found out that both uh, politically, economically, in society, there was a great advantage of having gender equality. 
So after maybe that first period of fighting for women's rights from a human rights perspective, there was in addition a recognition that there was a value of having women leaders. Uh, and we leaders in their own lives or of companies or of countries. And so there seem to be a certain number of qualities that women leaders have. For a long time, uh, there was a feeling that in order to lead, you needed to look what the men do and then do the same. Then you could lead too. But if you look closer to it, you can see that many men uh, leaders are not very well uh, performing. It's not that they have made so fantastic societies, uh, also that they are so great role models. So now I think also we have come to a phase where we can recognize some values that women have been taking to the table, both politically and, and in companies. One of them is, it's hard to be general when it comes to gender difference, uh, but just uh, a few of them. One is to be a bit humble in the sense that you don't take your conclusions for granted. You don't take yourself to be above good advice. You build on inclusivity. Uh, so that I think it's, it's a good thing and it has proven also in uh, companies. Women are uh, very often seen to be less self-centered than men. So it's not me and my career and look at me how great I am. Uh, but it is to be centered around the task that you are performing and your success is measured in the success of your country or your economy or uh, your family. So less self-centered. And then in my view, it's also the ability to uh, lead by example and lead through transforming a society by convincing people not by forcing, not by showing that you are the strongest, that you can oppress and that you can command, but to convince people, dialogue with people, explain to people and show empathy, understand that they experience hardship. Uh, Prime Minister Arna Solberg of Norway, early in the pandemic, she invited to a press conference only for children where she wanted to have a dialogue with them because they understood there's a pandemic. They understood that their freedoms is changing and they were very concerned. So it's something that was building from the whole society, the understanding of what are we going through and what do we all need to do uh, in order to, uh, to protect the most vulnerable uh, among us. I think also maybe a society with a greater gender equality, it becomes a society where you will not necessarily blur the lines about what are men's uh, qualities and women's quality as many fear, but it will much more be determined on the individuals. What are my qualities as individuals? And that can be for men a liberating factor uh, and it can be so for women also. And hopefully it will also be a society where you do not define people by the color of their skin, by their disability. You don't define people by their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, so in that sense, I have never understood people who can be feminists, but they are racists. And I can never understand somebody who is fighting racism, but who is homophobic. So I think also it's an acceptance of a general openness in society, uh, which should encompass also the broader understanding of what it is to be a human being. That was Dr. Astrid Heller, the Ambassador of Norway, 
remarking on the types of societies that accept female leaders and some of the characteristics of successful women in leadership. Our second guest is the Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Candeth Mosheho Dlamini. We discuss the negative effects on global concerns and gender equality if women do not take up leadership roles and comment on some of the initiatives countries have adopted to reduce gender inequality. Deputy Minister, you have quite a broad portfolio in terms of your your mandates looking after Africa, looking after Asia as some of the continental spaces. One thing that has struck me in the various conversations that we've had over the years on the program is that there seems to be an increase with regards to the feminization of government services across the world. And for instance, you even remarked that many of the UN agencies are run by women. What is your opinion on why we're seeing this positive movement of increasing women within the government and political sphere? You know, in, in, the, in the global um, uh, summit and intergovernmental processes that are going on in the in the globe, especially in the continent, they have been calling for the representation of women as well as their leadership in all spheres of their livelihood. This emergency is, is almost a, a slow coming issue, but represents the required shift in the way women and their role are perceived. I think as South Africa, we need really to create space and also advocacy, advocacy for witnessing the evolution in terms of challenges of diplomats uh, dealing with all these issues of economic impact on conflict, climate change, and obviously the violation of human rights, which required a gender perspective. But if women are not in that space, so that feeling and, 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 and that commitment, even from member states, will not really uh, bear fruits because women are not part of, of, of that, that, that space. The other issue is the feminization of poverty, which required also the gender-sensitive approach and gender-responsive program and policies through the continent because everything that is happening is happening, whether it's conflict, whether it's terrorism, all those things are affecting the first line of much of people that are affected are women and the children. They displace women, they displace children, they deprive children for their growth, they displace women not really having space to, to raise their children. So we, we're looking forward to that women need to be in the forefront of everything, especially in addressing those overarching dynamics in the foreign policy. In a nutshell, the gender inequality that continue to persist can only be reversed by women taking up their rightful place in leadership, especially in the decision-making setting environment. Deputy Minister, turning towards more of a gender focus, gender equality is an ongoing struggle and different countries apply various mechanisms to address it. If we take South Africa, for instance, one example was the amendment of the Employment Equity Act, which is really about people receiving equal pay for work of equal value. 
In your role, you must have experienced a multitude of cultures from the different countries you've been exposed to. Please tell us about some of the positive interventions you've seen in various countries that promote gender equality. Yeah, there, there are many examples of initiatives adopted by different countries to promote gender equality. I would like to focus on very few of them. The one is unpaid care work. The unpaid care work is perpetuated the inequality between women and men, girls and boys. There's a growing call for its recognition, distribution, reduction, reward paid care, work and ensure representation of women care workers. Uruguay as a country has got a Uruguay Care Act is exemplary in how it has transformed the care economy in that country. The second one is the productive resources. Productive resources, countries like Botswana have used revenue generated from natural resources, extracts to finance their social protection system including healthcare and income support for vulnerable um, uh, population in, in Botswana. And in Kenya, the finance and economic inclusion, Kenya has got a digital agricultural solution that has transformed market access and financial inclusion, allowing increased access for women who operate in the informal economy is important for their economic empowerment. So you 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 you, you can see that, um, that there's a lot that other countries are doing, and we 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 need to learn from them. The other one is the promotion of girls and education. You know, the promotion of girls and education here in in, in the whole world, we 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 have got a problem here. Uh, especially we're quite aware that menstruation is, is not a choice to, to any woman, to any girl, but specifically the lack of access to sanitary pads contributes to school dropout, rate of a number of girls, in rate of number of girls, of course. And now that's the call for tax-free sanitary pads have been growing. South Africa is among a number of countries who do not tax sanitary items. And when you talk about tax on sanitary wear, interestingly for me, I I know that Scotland did it a while ago, but more recently New Zealand made the announcement where the countries, incidentally both led by women, are offering free sanitary wear. So women and girls don't have to pay for it because it is expensive. Yes. Yes, so we, 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 we are calling for, 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 for such um, for, for such a move in, in the countries because definitely women, they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. Menstruation, it's, 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 it's a given to every woman. So, yes, we are aware that Scotland is, is providing the sanitary pads uh, free. So we hope that. Some of African countries can do the same, can start by not taxing the sanitary uh, uh, items and also move towards supplying them freely to to, to our youngest. So there's a lot that we we can learn that really will make sure that the gender equality is achieved in the world. But it comes very, very slow. Of course, we're getting there. 
You have just heard from South Africa's Deputy Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Candice Masheko Dlamini. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro soul musician, songwriter, and producer. You are listening to Womanity Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our next guest is Ms. Liesel van der Berwe from the Encarta Freedom Party, who serves as a member of parliament and sits on several committees. She shares her opinion of what she thinks is needed to ensure that more women make it to the top of their fields. I think we who occupy space um, should really take a more active role in, in mentoring I think, um, you know, I, I've thought about it, but I, I think it's probably something that I will eventually um, speak speak to the Speaker of Parliament, of our own Parliament, um, too. I mean, she's, she's, for example, a wonderful leader herself. I've got the greatest respect for, for Tandi Modise, our Speaker. She's, you know, when she speaks, you are captivated. It's also somebody who, you know, she obviously has a rich history but um, she's a very strong female politician. And, and, you know, even you don't have to be an ANC member to look up to to her qualities and her leadership skills. But I think we we who occupy space, we have we who afford to to be where we are, should take a greater role in mentoring. And that is also, um, you know, it goes goes for for businesses as, as well. Um, and I, I even thought that at some stage, maybe, um, you know, in, in the month of August, um, when we do celebrate Women's Month, Maybe Parliament could, um, you know, encourage its female MPs to take in some, you know, some young people who, young women who would like to be involved in politics. I mean, we do get them in our various structures and our political parties and bring them in, you know, uh, mentor them, show them the robes, show them what it looks like to be inside um, the, the chambers of Parliament, you know, take them to portfolio committee meetings, show them that, you know, you don't have to be intimidated by, by male voices. And I think if we start by by making small meaningful um gestures like that you know that that's more that's more meaningful and impactful than talking about just you know encouraging women to to say to them you know take take part in politics or you know dream of being a ceo of a company i think if we start mentoring um taking and showing young young people the ropes um young women the ropes it will become much easier for them to to ascend to those spaces uh, where we are, you know, we didn't have that. I think many of us, um, I remember coming in as a young female MP and I I struggled in my first portfolio committee meetings because I, you know, I had nobody to show me the ropes, but um, I had to find my way. And, and like I said, it was a dream that I had from a young age, but I do think it will be easier if, if we take an active role um, in mentoring. Um, you know, female leaders should consider very strongly that that we should be giving back um, and I think that that's possible. That's a it's a possible solution to start helping people get into these spaces. It's so important to have someone to who's walked that journey before to to be able to give back. And I I think that it's always a a way of instead of being instead of having someone walk through the same pain processes that you had to undergo. That if you can give them that leap forwards, gives them a bit of an accelerant. No, definitely. And you know what? I, I, I'm thinking back, uh, you know, from where where I've come from, you know, um, 
in the beginning, like I said, when I didn't have anybody, at, at that stage also our caucus was relatively small. So I didn't have, there were not many other females in my caucus. So I was a, I was a young female amongst uh, males who had been there for many, many years. And um, literally I, you know, I struggled because I didn't, I didn't really know, not only not did I not know the ropes, but I also became unnecessarily hard on myself. You know, for example, in, in um, to go to a portfolio committee, you have to study your documents and then you have to ask tough questions. And I remember my maiden speech standing at the podium thinking, look to my right, there's all these struggle heroes. There's your Naledi Pandor, your, you know, at that stage it was still Trevor Manuel. And because you didn't, because I didn't have somebody saying to me, you know what, you are well prepared, you did your homework, there's nothing to be nervous about, um, we are here to support you. Um, it, I became quite hard on myself because I felt that everything that I was doing was was not good enough or it was, I, I was failing in, in my duties to hold the executive to account. And I've had to, I've had to, you know, get out of that. I've had to sort of, um, uh, but I mean, I'm generally a hard worker, so I do believe that when I go to meetings, um, I'm well prepared and I do my best and I do justice to what I'm supposed to be doing. But I, I do feel that if I had somebody to hold my hand in the in the earlier years, maybe I could have, uh, you know, gotten out of the starting blocks a little bit faster. So I do, yeah, I, I do strongly believe in giving back, and I think it's very important that Parliament itself strongly considers. Um, these type of mentorship programs for for young for young women because I don't I don't even think if you look at the continent I've interacted with many female MP, MPs from from various other countries like Malawi and Tanzania etc. I don't think um, it's something that we do as as female parliamentarians but I think really it's something that um, like I said earlier we we get into these habits of talking about the empowerment of women. But this, for example, is a small practical step that we can take as a parliament to encourage throughout the month of, of August um, to have these mentorship programs where we take in young young women who have got aspirations to lead and, and mentor and give back. That was Member of Parliament, Ms. Liesel van der Merwe from the Encarta Freedom Party. Now we hear from the former CEO of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, Ms. Nikki Newton-King about the competitive advantage of diversity in business and the value leaders attain from embracing it. Yeah, I mean, I think the first point is we underestimate the strength of diversity because in this country we treat diversity as something to be noted on a scorecard and not as a competitive advantage. But in my experience, if you truly embrace diversity, it really allows one to look at uh, the most tricky things from multiple perspectives, resulting in a far more creative and robust answer. So if you want to build diversity, you have to really believe that it is in your interests, your competitive interests, to be more diverse uh, at at the top. And I think... The reality is that uh, you have to have that agenda driven authentically uh, at board and executive level. And so if it's not been driven by the executive, then, then it has to be driven by the board. And the way you do that is by making sure that transformation at an executive level is measured by the board. It's in executive scorecards. It counts. It hurts if they are not transforming uh, fast enough. But if one is serious about um, making a change, uh, not only at the executive level, but also down the organization, because what you aim for in good organizations is to grow your timber so that 
in time, you have enough timber that will eventually get to the executive uh, level. Well, if you are serious uh, about that, then you really have to relook at every element of recruitment to make sure that it encourages diversity. I think people underappreciate how, for instance, setting the job requirements needs to be looked at with a different eye. Have you set them truly neutrally? Have you looked around in the pool that you're recruiting from? Are you looking around in a pool that is truly diverse? For instance, have you used recruiters that specialize in finding women? What does your panel, your interview panel look like? All of these things, you have to be conscious about it, and then you have to measure it. What made a difference at the JSC is we had an absolute policy about diversity. Not gender diversity, to be fair, but diversity generally. And that forced us to look at all of these things. And then I think the the reality is that there is a tipping point when you have enough women and especially enough senior women at a workplace and people are conscious that that these are women of quality, they are executing at the most extraordinary level, then other women want to come and join you. I mean, the JSC definitely had reached that tipping point where, you know, if we were looking for senior positions, I often had to say, look, this one I really need to find a man for because there are just too many women around the table. So you, you, you really have to be strategic, deliberate and authentic about that. And these are unconscious biases. So what you, you're saying, it's about making the unconscious bias conscious and trying to eliminate it. I think it's really about challenging and having the conversations about the strength of diversity and having the conversation about how we do things around here in this business that encourage different views, different ways of, th- of thinking. I mean, when I was the CEO, the very first conversation that any new staff member had at the JSE once they joined was an induction uh, discussion from me, and it talked about um, it talked about the history of the JSE and what that meant and why that was important as a framework, but not as a as a binding constraint. That we were writing the history that people would talk about in ten years' time, twenty, fifty years' time. But I also talked about our values, and one of the values is diversity, and that's diversity of age, of gender, of thought, of business model. And when you go through that and you really authentically believe that, then people understand that that you're encouraging different views, different ways of thinking about them. So therefore, it's not surprising that you look around and everybody is different to you. In, in my executive, not one single person went to the same school, as an example. In fact, even came from the same background. And, and I thought that both, uh, it, it was quite complex to manage from time to to time because you've got all these strong personalities capable of having a view but boy were we able to robustly interrogate anything we wanted to do and I'm always very very uh, grateful for having had those sorts of team members around me. I was going to ask you with all of that diversity how did you come to reach consensus on points? Well um, sometimes my colleagues would say that I had a higher threshold for dissonance than some of them did. And my general leadership style is very collaborative and, and I like to hear different views. I like to be challenged. I think it's very easy for CEOs to settle into the my way is the way, you know, um, and I think you really have to work hard to avoid that. So we spent a lot of time discussing things and hearing people out and it, it didn't really matter which role you had 
whether you were the CEO, CFO, the head of technology, the head of post-trade, um, the head of HR. If we were discussing anything, you could have a view. And then we would settle on the view that made the most sense. And often it became quite clear what that answer was. But sometimes, uh, you know, the role of the CEO is to make the decision at the end of the day. And, and sometimes I had to do that. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Our last guest is Dr. Melinda Souchard, who is the head of the Center for Vaccines and Immunology in the National Institute for Communicable Disease. She also occupies several other leadership posts and shares some of her perspectives about women in leadership. I think it's important um, for potential female leaders um, to feel that they, they, are, they are naturals and that they should be encouraged to take up leadership roles that they feel themselves being naturally drawn to. In other words, um, there are different leadership styles and each leader has their own unique style. And it's not necessary for a female leader to um, follow the mold of any previous leader who has held um, that position or similar positions or to, to copy or emulate someone that they, they see as a leader. Really, it's important for each leader to find their own way and find their own path and be true to themselves. Um, for many um, introverts, I think it's helpful to know that introverts can be leaders um, they don't need to uh, have an extroverted persona in order to be a leader. Uh, they need to really just um, be positive. Being positive is a really important characteristic of a leader. And they need to care about those who are following them. Uh, if no one is following you, you are not leading. So I would say it's important to um, be confident in oneself, not to try to to copy anyone else and um, to to gain confidence and support from those below you uh, um, just as much or perhaps is even more important than gaining um, support and confidence of those above you. One of the things that you've just spoken about and I think is absolutely critical, but something we don't hear very often is caring about your followers. Because as you say, if you don't have followers, you're not leading anybody. Yes, I think what I often hear from um, women um, uh, or, or um, young women in, um, who are aspiring to leadership positions is around the lack of mentors and around seeking a mentor. And I think the message is that um, not to be, not to worry if they don't have a mentor, that sometimes it's okay to find your own place and your own role and to do it independently. And sometimes not having someone um, above you who is guiding you or leading you although you think of it as a deficiency at the time, can turn out to be an advantage. Um, nature hates a vacuum, as they say. And often um, there is a vacuum in a particular field, and therefore there is no one to mentor you in that area or in that field. Um, you, what I want to say to, to young women is they should pursue that field regardless. Um, even though it may be lonely, they are stepping into what is a leadership role because they will be able to mentor those who come after them. Um, it is that very absence of mentorship that means that one is in the front 
seat of that um, vacuum in that, and, and is driving that particular program. So I, I just want to sort of give a, a, a vote of confidence to women who feel alone. Um, this idea of uh, it's lonely at the top is an important one. Often uh, women who start to occupy leadership roles suddenly feel very lonely and wonder um, if, if they belong there and if they're doing the right thing because they suddenly feel um, you know, that they have no one to talk to, no one that understands their issues or their problems or can guide them. And um, just to reiterate that that is a normal part of the process, and I think it's um, concurrent with any leadership role, uh, is that, unfortunately, if you are the leader, there is no one to, to lead you. Um, you just need to have confidence that um, you will find your own way and that that is um, normal and correct. Uh, and not always to be seeking um, mentorship that may or may not come. On that point, because as you say, if you are pioneering a field, if you are, are leading an entity, you don't have anyone who's who's gone before you or, or walked that particular road. But what are your views about networking opportunities and almost being able to, in a similar fashion as you mentioned earlier, of being able to cross-collaborate and go out of your niche area. Do you think that being in a, an environment where you've got opportunities to network in uh, across sectors with leaders from different entities, that that helps advance or, or provide reassurance? Yes, certainly. I think um, one must always take opportunities offered. Uh, in other words, leaders need to learn to say no at certain points in time. In other words, um, to protect their time and not to take on roles and responsibilities that detract from their goals and objectives. But uh, leaders also need to learn to say yes, which is if an opportunity that um, a person really wants and knows that they want is offered to them on a silver platter, not to say no. And um, although that sounds obvious. I think women often fall into the trap of thinking, oh, I have so much on my plate and now um, someone is offering me an opportunity to, you know, network in a particular way or be on a particular, uh, you know, committee or body, uh, which is almost an optional extra. Um, will I have time? Perhaps I should say no because I won't have time. And, you know, that, uh, that is a self-defeating kind of perspective. If, if uh, an opportunity offered is in the correct direction um, and aligns with one's goals, then um, one needs to have the confidence to say yes and take up uh, good opportunities, uh, regardless of, um, you know, that little voice in someone's head that says, you'll never manage, you'll never cope, um, you know, you're not good enough. Uh, it's really to downplay all the nagging um, small voices and to, um, to step up, to be brave and uh, to do justice to one's own um, one's own. Uh, desires and directions uh, of where one wants to go in life. And how do you think we can encourage women to assume more decision-making roles? Because often we find that there is a deficit of women at the top. I think women um, often need a little bit more encouragement um, than perhaps is otherwise the case. And sometimes um, women don't speak up. So in, for, for men who are in leadership positions and who are mentoring, um, you know, a group of individuals under them, it's sometimes to say, um, you know, ask directly what the women members of the team think. Um, for example, at the end of a meeting, ask for individuals' opinions. 
rather than um, waiting for the, you know, just letting the loudest people talk the most um, or inviting women to chair certain sessions rather than asking or expecting volunteers. Um, so it's around not, um, not letting the dominant voices be sort of overshadow of voices that may be quieter, uh, but whose opinions may be um, equally valuable. And um, women, women need to be encouraged to um, partake fully and not um, step back. So just because they are sort of worried about potential future career, uh, family career clashes, uh, should not limit their decisions, um, you know, at any particular time. Um, they should really take advantage of um, career opportunities that are offered to them in full. And um, the, the family commitments um, will sort themselves out. In other words, in other words, uh, women often jeopardize their own ambitions by being, um, by using excuses, by saying, I'm scared that I won't be able to do a particular task if one day I, uh, you know, have another child. So it's around women, um, I think women controlling their own destiny. I don't think anyone's going to do it for them, uh, but women should not invent obstacles in their own minds. Um, you know, I really think we need to challenge our own obstacles often. Uh, an important example in my life was when, uh, when I was complaining to a friend of mine about lack of time to do particular tasks I needed to get done. And um, she asked me, what would you need in order to do, to do it? Uh, and my answer to her was I would need, um, you know, a quiet time. I'd need to go and sit somewhere that is not my office and is not my household uh, in order to get the work done. Uh, for example, uh, writing research papers. And what she said to me is, why can't you? And I realized she was completely right. There was nobody telling me I could not leave my office and go and work in a coffee shop. Um, it's unconventional, but it's uh, not incorrect. I was a fairly senior at the time. No one was, um, um, you know, telling me in, in which location I needed to be. This was before the days of uh, everyone working remotely. Um, but the, the point is, is that I think often the obstacles are in our own minds. And it's important to challenge uh, our own assumptions uh, work out what we would need in order to pursue our goals. And once uh, we've worked that out, then you just need to, to make it happen, ask for it, et cetera. And oftentimes people won't say no. Um, the hurdle is often in our own minds rather than being an actual physical um, barrier. People want you to succeed. You just need to um, say what it is that you need. People will support you. That was Dr. Melinda Souchard, who heads up the Center for Vaccines and Immunology in the National Institute for Communicable Disease, discussing leadership in practice. We hope that this compilation inspires you to lead in your respective spaces. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. Stay safe and Happy New Year. Wishing you all peace and prosperity in 2022.